Welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name's Sparanda Sandu. My guest today is Dr. Wanyi Dai Li. She's a research scientist at Meta and the Novi Economics team. She has a PhD in Operations Management from Stanford University Management Science and Engineering Department and graduated from Wellesley College in 2016 with a major in Physics and a minor in Computer Science. She was a research fellow at the World Agroforestry Center, a pro bono consultant for the One Acre Fund, and a co-organizer of Mechanism Design for Social Good. Our chat today touches on a lot of topics. We talk about her research interests, how she decided to pursue her PhD. Wonderfully enough, podcasts were a part of this. Her starting a new research agenda by connecting to different communities, her work with NGOs, and also her pottery hobby, her appreciation for the liberal arts education, and her involvement in sustainability. Wanyi Dai Li, welcome to Tidbits of Research. You just graduated with your PhD a few months ago. Congratulations. What was the first thing you did after you turned in your thesis? Do you remember? Well, thank you so much, Smaranda, for having me. Wow, I don't know if I remembered. I, I think, well, I remember the thing that happened right after I defended mm. my uh, thesis. I think after the defense, people told me that I passed. And then I immediately had another meeting with my advisor to kind of drop down the feedback and notes people give me because I thought it was like a really good dissertation session mm-hmm. and I wanted to just like remember the feedback people provided and hopefully like get that into my thesis and papers. <laughs> so no like all out celebration. It was a full on during um, pandemic. I think afterwards we did have some friends coming to the outside space that's close to uh, our place and we had pastries and just uh, saw a few friends together and that was really great. I mean that's as good a celebration during pandemic as it goes. Writing the dissertation and preparing to defend doing all of that during pandemic, how has that been for you? I think, you know, compared to, like, I'm sure everyone had had a really difficult time during pandemic. So for that reason, I don't think I had a worse time than anyone else. And in fact, I feel really fortunate because I was able to be with my partner during the pandemic, at least go through this together. And of course, everyone faced the same problem that there's no more separation between work and personal life. So I just stayed in my bedroom every day, (laughs) kind of 24-7 to do this. Right. But everyone's doing the same and everyone's very supportive. Um, So, yeah. That's good. It was a good experience. I'd like to talk a little bit more about your research interests throughout your PhD. Can you walk us through a little bit what exactly your main research was about? Yeah, I think that sounds good. So maybe before I go into my research, I can just talk about like the department I'm in and kind of zoom uh, into the space. Like, how did I get to where I am now? So I got my PhD at the Stanford University's Management Science and Engineering Department. So this is a very multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary department from people studying from engineering to business topics and all sorts kind of in between. And my PhD was in operations management. So what that means is that people are trying to study operational and business questions people can face in any organization and how you can use mathematical and engineering tools to solve them. 
So a classic topics people study is optimization and how say you can help uh, ride hailing companies to optimize their routes or optimize their pricing patterns to reach whatever goals that people might have, a company might have. So I know that was the context of what people studied in my field, but I thought, okay, there are all these really amazing, you know, theories and tools you can use to solve optimization problem in a context. So why don't we bring these tools in a field that I feel like I truly care about or in an application area that would be hopefully good for the world. At least that was the goal when I started my PhD. So I started to dive into um, environmental sustainability because that's an area I feel really passionate about, especially in the context of sustainability in the developing country, uh, as we know, the, because the global inequality within the sustainability context is really serious. So uh, I was looking at how I can use these operations management research questions and apply them onto the uh, sustainability space. Mm -hmm. Now, my thesis topic was called Contracts and Incentive Design in Environmental Sustainability, where I study markets and mechanisms and contracts and think about how can you create them in order to help either governments or NGOs to reach specific goals they might have in their environmental programs. So how should we, not we, how do you <laughs> define environmental sustainability? Wow, that is, uh, that is such a hard question. I've definitely got that question before and I know everyone think slightly differently about it. I think about environmental sustainability with more emphasis on sustainability and maybe less on environment because I think about this term in relationship to, I think, us as human beings and us as a society. I think it's more that we want to live in an environment that we're not depleting resources and creating a worse condition for the generations that's you know, yet to come. So this is time-wise, but you can also think about location-wise, just horizontally, we want to think about how do we create an environment that is equally nice for everyone to live in. Um, you know, even within our generation, and that is not something we currently have. Yeah, so I think about sustainability in conjunction to humans' well-being as well as our economic development, because often there is this conflict between economic development and sustainability. So the question is, can we try to like get all these different factors in and think about them together? What kinds of things do we know by applying these tools to these problems? So I think this is a really amazing question, and I want to say that the uh, tools and the field I am in are relative. So the tools are old, but the way of thinking are really new. And I hope that we're actually creating a new field to get more interdisciplinary researchers to come in and solve these problems. So the reason I said that I think the problems are really new is because, or the way of thinking is really new, was because when I started doing literature review, for my project, I would go into these, you know, pockets of academic papers that are completely not related to each other. So I would be reading an economic paper on, say, contract theory, which is, you know, people developed a really, really good theory on how should you write contracts, how should you deal with information asymmetry, 
problems or moral hazards. But this is all started, you know, even back in 1970s, and people like really added a lot of good theory on that branch, but completely separated from sustainability. And then I would go read papers in the sustainability space that are academics or just NGOs and governments publishing reports, and of course they are not in touch with with the other side of the world. So once I saw the disconnect, that's when I think, okay, there either might be something really new that we could think about, or maybe we just decide that it's not meaningful to connect them together. So a lot of the research was thinking, how can we connect the different communities so that the new questions are actually not just well posed, but also can lead us to something new that we don't know before. Was this interest in interdisciplinary? Questions and answers and problem solvings was this kind of an older thing, or did you discover it during your PhD? Your undergrad was in physics and CS, so that was a little bit of putting things together too. So I would say the you know day to day of really going through this interdisciplinary research process was something I did more concretely at Stanford, and I was also very fortunate because I received this Stanford interdisciplinary graduate fellowship, which allowed me. To really go do what I want without, say, specific advisors or specific departments say you have to do this research in order to reach certain goals. But I think the background thinking or my, you know, my intention to do interdisciplinary work definitely started at Wellesley because、uh, I think Wellesley, given that it, it's amazing liberal arts education, I think at Wellesley the education really allowed me to pursue different things. So even though you know my like background. Officially was in physics and uh, uh, computer science, but I took a lot of economics classes. I took a lot of political science classes, and just all sorts of things. And I think the joy was to like see all these different things from the side and connect the concepts together. And now I was able to actually try to do that during my graduate school.、Mm-hmm. How did you discover, given your Wellesley interests, that what you want to do is go to pursue a PhD in operations management? Well, I love telling this story because it was towards the end of my junior year. I was, you know, almost done with my physics major. I was thinking about what other classes to take because I always wanted to take new classes. But at the same time, I was listening to a podcast.、Uh, I was listening to an episode of Freakonomics. It was one of my favorite、um, podcasts back then, and they had this Nobel Prize laureate, who is an economist, called Al Roth, to come give a talk on his Nobel Prize winning research called market design. So my advisor does market design, and I am in the market design community myself as well. But basically, that talk just overviewed that market design is this field where you can use optimization, math, computer science, all of these amazing tools. To design markets that you know may not have money to work within the market. So, for example, kidney exchange. You can think about kidney exchange as a market because there are donors、uh, and patients who have different properties of their kidney, and they need to match their antibodies in order to create a successful match. Or you can think about you know school matching. So. Kids who want to go to public schools might have different kind of preferences, and school have different preference on children. So how can you match them so that you create these pairs of successful admission? So these problems they really opened up my eyes because I thought, wow, I learned all these amazing tools at Wellesley, 
and I can go ahead use math and do things that are actually really impactful for the world. So I looked up where he got his PhD, and he got his PhD at my department at Stanford University. Back then, it was called economic engineering. So I just really tried my yeah tried my luck. I actually remember the day was in the beginning of my senior year. I actually had to Google what is operations research, what is operations management, because I just have never heard of those terms before. Looking back, what do you think? Made you prepared for the kinds of research you were doing, and what, if anything, made you feel unprepared or uncertain? So I think the preparation definitely came in two parts. One was during、uh, undergrad, then the other one was, you know, just the first couple of years of grad school. I'm sure maybe you've had similar experience as well, because any PhD, no one just come in with a topic to study. Everyone have to go through many waves.、Uh, so I think at Wellesley, the rigorous curriculum definitely prepared me. I know a lot of things I studied at Wellesley was not directly a- applicable, but I think it did give me the confidence that even if I were just go on to try a new thing, I knew I had the ability. If I just work hard, I will be able to do this thing. Because I remember at the physics department, I would sometimes skip some classes to take a more interesting class, and the challenge, like that experience, was just exhilarating and obviously difficult. But I think there Wellesley gave me the confidence to say, okay, even though I'm not going to study this thing, I'm taking graduate level classes, like courses in optimization and stochastic systems, and I had zero undergrad background because I did not get a full math major. But I still was able to kind of, it was it was difficult, but I did it. And so I think the Wellesley preparation was really important. And then the other part of preparation was just I think failures. During grad school, like the first few years, starting a project, no understanding what I wanted, what I liked about it, and what I didn't like about it. Because I remember in the beginning, I would do research that are not what it appears to be. Because I think in academia, there's always a lot of research where you can write a paper about something, but you are trying to sell the story more than what it actually is. I think it's. Often, problem is especially in topics that are closer to social sciences or closer to the social topics. So I was trying to be very, I think, attuned to how I felt about them and what what are my comfort level in terms of selling research. So I decided, okay, there are certain things I did not want to spend my time doing. So I think it took me some courage to say, okay, I won't keep going down this route just because I started, but instead I wanted to do something that. Made me feel like I'm spending my time、uh, well. Like that's that's just very hard <laughs> to do that kind of self analysis. That's so hard. The truth is that it's fifty percent of my time during my P. You know, five years of my PhD. The first two years and a half is these wandering and exploring and self doubting, but coming with a lot of self analysis. I think afterwards I felt like I made. Right decisions on understanding what research topic I wanted to pursue and actually go do that. But before I got there, it felt like I would never get there. Part of your PhD work was collaborating with some international NGOs, like the One Acre Fund or the World Agroforestry Center. Yeah. What did a day in your life look like back then? What were the kinds of things you were doing? I think this depends on, like, you know, really. Where in the、uh, point of the collaboration was because I still remember the first time I just sent out a cold email 
to the World Agroforestry Center, the team, and、uh, I think they got back to me. Then they stopped getting back to me, but it was a lot of me persisting and going to just reach out to them via email. But obviously, the other time is spending a lot of time reading about what NGOs are doing, reading on the environmental and NGO side of things. Because at that point, I felt like I already had enough theoretical training on the operations research side. So there, I spent a lot of my day reading things that may or may not have been useful. But I think eventually it came out to be, again, a thing I think all PhD students would go through, which is that all my day I felt like I would go home at you know 6 p.m. to cook my dinner. I felt like maybe I did not do anything that would help me to get closer to graduation that day. But now looking back, there was a lot of background knowledge building that was so essential. Because now people come to me and ask me questions about, oh, what do these NGOs do, or what are these programs like, and I can actually answer them. But back then, it didn't feel like I was getting anywhere with the readings I was doing. And then eventually, as we got to know each other more, I actually went to Uganda towards the end of 2019. Yeah, actually, th- that was you know just a few months before COVID started in China,、uh, which is obviously crazy because the things all turned to a different direction since COVID, as you can imagine. Even now, Africa is seeing its third wave, which is extremely、uh, unfortunate. But it, towards the end of 2019, World Agroforestry Center actually invited me to go to Uganda because I feel that the right thing was not just. Me discussing things at the theoretical level via the internet, but rather for me to go visit the farmers and see the field and talk to the local NGO and also meet some、um, government branches that were doing environmental、uh, programs that they cared about. So that was an extremely educational, I think, trip、uh, for me. And since then, I was able to actually launch survey. And have some collaboration with the NGO. You were saying, you know, you were persistent. You kept emailing them, and you wanted, you know, this collaboration with the World Agroforestry Center. What made you decide on that one, if anything, or on the One Acre Fund? What was that process like? So、uh, the World Agroforestry Center was a lot of persistence, and I think it was also just a lot of luck and you know mutual trust. Because in the beginning, I definitely tried to reach out to many different NGOs that I think would potentially be interesting to、uh, work with. And so again, so many things are because of serendipity, and I feel really grateful for all these people and organizations that were supportive. When I reached out to them, because I'm just a grad student from nowhere, why would they, you know, try to listen to me? <laughs> so I was very lucky that they were very responsive,、um, and、uh, our collaboration kind of just started from there. And the One Acre Fund collaboration kind of came afterwards because as I started to do more things and getting to know more people, I met people at the World Bank, and then words got around, and people would introduce me. And would say, oh, why don't you talk to One Acre Fund? And it turned out that One Acre Fund、uh, was creating kind of environmental programs that I think I was able to help. So we kind of just hit it off from there. So、um, you know, research is a long, arduous journey, especially if you want the research to have some more impact apart from the paper publishing goal. So it was just a lot of patience and、uh, waiting and see what other people are willing to do. Together, along with you. So you mentioned you conducted some interviews with farmers in Uganda on their 
tree usage behavior. What were some of the surprising things you found out in these interviews? What were some things that you were not expecting? Yeah, so, you know, as a theorist myself, I often get criticized on thinking people are rational agents and trying to maximize the utility. And, you know, even though that's what I'm trending, I, of course, personally don't believe in any of that. But I think one thing that was extremely surprising, but also made sense, I think, was that when I did the focus group interview in Uganda, I divided the farmers in by gender. So I had uh, I worked with a group of men, male farmers, and then I also worked with a group of female farmers. I kind of asked them the same kind of questions but they give me very starkly different answers. <laughs> I wonder if it had anything to do with uh, I am uh, you know, a woman myself, but I remember I would ask the male farmers, what is the relationship between your farm and the trees? Because trees provide a lot of good kind of um, soil fertility and other good benefits, but it's often a huge investment for farmers actually to grow trees on their farms because it takes away active short-term profit from cash crop or subsistence farming. But anyway, the male farmers all told me they love trees, they always grow trees. They basically agreed with everything that I was saying. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is cool. Like, I don't need to like care about this anymore because people know like uh, how they should be managing their trees on farms. And then I would talk to the female farmers. Then they all told me that they they need to cut down trees often or just collect branches because often they have children and then the mothers are the one who are responsible to pay school fees for their children, but not the father. And when mothers don't have extra uh, farm incomes, so they just go ahead and collect firewood or charcoal so they can sell for cash. So I got very different uh, answers. And then the female farmers were telling me if there were government or NGO programs, which can actually provide them incentive, extra incentives for them to manage their trees more sustainably, they think that would be really useful because otherwise they have to prioritize their children's education. They have to, you know, get charcoal to cook for their family that night and the men of the house are not responsible. So I know that is something that, you know, in my mathematical model, I would never be able to really truly captured. I, I mean, there's obviously a lot of really amazing research on behavioral economics and development economics these days that study these topics in depth. But for me, that was just a, you know, hands-on most intimate experience for me to see the difference. And I'm sure had I interviewed all of them in the same group, the women may, might not have felt courageous or comfortable enough to speak their mind truly. That's so cool. And that you were able to like, see the differences right there. Yeah, it was a really amazing experience. And I felt grateful because I think clearly the women were speaking their truth and they were trusting me as an interviewer because I also know that often when researchers from a different country, when they come to interview the interviewees in these field research, often interviewees just say whatever the interviewer want them to say yeah. because they might be seeing a different skin color, they might perceive a different nationality or country of origin. There's all these bias that's, you know, in all of our heads that can make the research results not what we want it to be. Right. So I felt there, there were a degree of trust, uh, mutual trust. And so I felt really good about that experience. 
you're currently a research scientist at, at Facebook. What kind of work do you do now? Yeah, so this is a very new position, so I, you know, don't have too much detail to share yet. Uh, but I'm at a team working on thinking about better financial inclusion and creating payments uh, and financial services that are borderless. Because I think I actually forgot the exact number, but there's I think more than a billion people in the world that are still unbanked today. So even with a lot of my experience in Uganda and working with other NGOs in developing countries, whenever you want to create these kind of conditional cash transfer program or any program you want to link with cash or financial incentive, they in general have very large transaction costs. So one thing I really wanted to spend more time working on is thinking about how do you just come to create a world that has much better financial inclusion than where we live now. Personally, I'm not paying any services to have debit card because I have enough deposits for them to not charge me. But actually, financial services are really biased against low income and people of color, even within the U.S. Um, so this was a team at Facebook Financial that I felt very well aligned with. So I wanted to, you know, take a different turn and spend some time doing that. How did you decide on this path versus others that you were considering when you were finishing your PhD? Well, this is a huge question because, of course, I uh, struggled. Again, I'm sure all PhD students did whether to pursue academia, and that was a question I kind of asked myself for all five years. It was a difficult question because I did start a, a line of, I think, research agenda that are extremely meaningful to continue to pursue if I choose to. Uh, but at the same uh, time, I think I saw a lot of downside of academia and the academic path. And, and also, I think uh, then, uh, apart from the downside of academia, the other thing, I think personality-wise, was that I really wanted to live a life where I could have different life experience. But rather, I thought if I stayed in academia, I kind of could see what my life and life path would be for the rest of my life, which sounded really scary. To me, and so I just wanted to take on a completely different set of challenges, and uh, uh, work with people and resources that I didn't have in academia, so I can just experience what that, that is. I love that the scary thing was kind of having the expected and not the other way around. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm sure I get、um, you know scared by not knowing what the future is because as a Wellesley woman, I love planning. I love foreseeing <laughs> the future. Yeah,、uh, as well. But I think for me, I, I knew what I needed to do in academia in order to succeed. Maybe you know I did restrict my academic path to a lot of people I observed, and it just felt like. I wasn't ready to go take on that path、uh, for the next. It doesn't have to be for the next、uh, rest of my life. Could it just even be the next five to ten years? But at the same time, I still, you know, remain close contact with my research collaborators during my PhD and my advisors. And I know a lot of people I've talked to are continuing the style of research I was doing. And so I felt like I had my. Very tiny amount of legacy that's still embedded in the academic system. So I'm sure that there will be more amazing research coming that line. I'm sure you get this question a lot, but what do you think we can do as individuals to like help tackle the crisis of climate change? I think, of course, that I think at individual level, there's a lot of things we can do day to day in our life habits. 
I'm sure that we all know what they are. Uh, we could eat less meat. We could recycle more. There's all these little things we can do. But I think more broadly, there's more things we can do within, I guess, in a broader sense, like beyond the context of our personal life. Because I think within work, we can ask our employers or organizations where are they investing their money, or is our pension fund and retirement fund uh, going towards big oil, or are they going towards more sustainable, um, you know, companies? Or we could pay more attention into our local governments or even national governments. What are the environmental policy they're doing, and also how does that impact the global South? Just because we live in America, which is obviously really privileged, and we incur tons of energy consumption, but are we keeping up with our Paris Agreement? Are we paying enough to the developing countries so that they are allowed to develop while also uh, have a good environment? Obviously, I think these are not necessarily actions I can recommend people taking, but I think just generally be really well educated, read a lot of news on this side, is helpful because I think then. Based on our own talent, our own skill sets, I'm sure everyone can find ways to contribute given what they know and what they like to do. I think this is a good segue to another thing I really wanted to ask you about and, and talk about, which is this initiative that you're part of, co-organizing mechanism designed for social good. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about it. How you became involved? Yeah, mechanism designed for social good. We call it uh, MD4SG. Is I think you know my second academic home and has been so dear <laughs> to me and made my PhD life just like wonderful every day. So MD4SG is this multidisciplinary and cross institutional research initiative. That actually don't just involve researchers or PhD students. We also have a lot of participants from NGOs as well, practitioners, even on the policy side. We are a very global community. We not just have people from based in North America. We have a lot of participants from Europe, Asia, as well as Africa. The the founders already at Abebe and Kira Gutner started this organization as just a ten people reading group because. They were asking very similar questions, as I said earlier. You know, kind of to my research journey, which is how can we use these great mechanism design, computer science, economics tools to solve specifically for social good issues instead of just focusing on oh, how do advertising company, online advertising, make run better or more profitable ad auctions? The community grew there from 2016 from 10 people reading group. To now, we have two thousand、uh, members, kind of in、wow. our base, and we have about like two hundred active members who are participating in these working groups. So I think in the long term, we're trying to be an organization that can help NGOs and policymakers to better make their decision based on the tools we have,、uh, and we want to be very explicit that we. Want to benefit、uh, and work towards、uh, help out the、um, more historically disadvantaged communities, both within the U.S. and also globally. And while we are going towards that goal, at the same time, I think we're just a really welcoming academic community for research students or researchers from the globe who want to be more connected with each other,、um, because. You know, you have a PhD, so I'm sure you know that academia can often be a very scary place that may not be welcoming. There's a lot of 
old kind of tradition that may not be what we want the next generation academics to be. Uh, so we are just trying to be as welcoming as we can, connect people and talk about topics that we care about and foster better culture in this virtual world. What kinds of events have you participated in or, or problems more specific that you are trying to solve as part of MD4SG? Yeah, so I guess maybe I can talk a tiny bit into the uh, what MD4SG uh, does. So in case any of your listeners are interested in joining us, we are uh, like 100% welcome to that. You can just go to MD4SG.com. But we offer a monthly colloquium where we get uh, not just researchers, again, from the U.S., but researchers really internationally who have worked closely with NGOs and governments talk about their successful research cases. So this way we can educate ourselves on how to create this research to practice pipeline, which is like a very difficult thing to do. And then at the same time, we have active working groups where we meet up every two weeks. Different working groups have topics ranging from climate change, which is the one that I'm very involved in, and also, you know, thinking about fairness in algorithms as well as civic participation. We also have regional focused groups like Asia Pacific and Africa Initiative and Latin America Initiative. We're a very, you know, grassroots and bottom-up organization. So it's whatever the working group members think are the problems that they want to tackle, then they are go, then they will just, you know, go do this. So we always get a lot of people interested in working groups. I think a good example is the data economy working group, where they have been building uh, data platforms to make data that's privacy preserved, but they're more accessible in the global south, especially in the Africa continent, just because we want to provide more access, like research accessibility for researchers uh, there and to work on topics that are Africa specific. You've had a number of research internships. You did your PhD. You're back in the industry this time in a, in a full position. How, and this is kind of a, a meta question, but how does research differ in, in each of these instances? In your experience, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think I'm the right person to answer that just yet because my industry experience is so limited. But I think I can contrast the research within NGO and within academia. I actually think uh, often research that's done by uh, NGO are a lot more impact and practice focused than research done in academia because I've worked with NGO. I've tried to uh, you know approach different NGOs and then they would tell me, they think that academics are often asked questions that are purely research, but are not actually relevant to their mission or to a specific maybe poverty alleviation goal or sustainability goal that NGO is trying to answer. I personally don't think, you know, it's not fair to say our research questions within academia are not useful, but I do see that there is this slight tension because academics want to answer some question just for the sake of it. Like generic question in the format would be, do we prefer PC or do we prefer Mac? You know, this is a question that may not, well, actually it would have business implication, but I'm trying to say that academics want to ask questions about maybe society and our behavior that may not have a direct impact to practice. 
I think NGO in this research to practice pipeline, um, NGO questions are a lot closer to practice. So I've worked with them and they often say, unless your research topic is directly going to help us, they are so understaffed, they are reluctant to work with academics. We need to prioritize. Exactly, they have to prioritize certain questions. And so I think it says a lot about, I think, how academics should be presenting themselves into uh, like when we go out to the world and go talk to the practitioners, because we should be respecting their priorities and understanding what they want instead of just thinking, oh, I'm a researcher from Stanford University. Of course, people are going to want to collaborate with me. But that actually is not the case at all. I want to switch gears for, for just a minute, but I know you got into pottery in the last few years. I did. <laughs> what did you like about pottery? It was an amazing alternative to my research life because I remember my day would be, you know, when I was doing more theory work, my day would just be scratching, like sketching random math symbols on my, um, on my paper or just reading some or reading a paper on my computer yeah like my being is in a very different state than what i would do if i were doing pottery so after work i would go to the pottery studio and just throw a bunch of things on the wheel and it just feels amazing one because it's something physical and very material and i don't get to work anything with my hand apart from holding a pen uh, or (laughs) typing right in my work and also it's just very short span. I really like the fact that I can create something in a very short amount of time rather than research paper, which often take years for it to go from birth to fruitation. And also I think pottery teaches me about just, I want to be a more patient person. Mm. Um, anything comes with patient, patience and care would always come out better. And I'm a very impatient person. And obviously doing research, you need patience. So that was a good way. And also I think pottery helps me to think that I shouldn't be too detached to specific things or specific goals because anything can go wrong at any point. I was just making something last week. They, oh, I mean, they already came out of the kiln. I was about to take them home, but three of my cups just broke because I didn't position them correctly in my... So I try to, you know, feel, still feel motivated. Mm-hmm. and excited even if things like that happen but yeah i love pottery and it was a, a great of community of friends and people at the stanford uh, pottery studio sounds so much fun and it sounds so inspiring to try to learn so much about um, life in general just from pottery well when you're throwing pottery you don't know what to do so i just think about all these crazy thoughts uh, and try to make sense of my life <laughs> a great way to stop Wenyi, thank you so much I've had so much fun thank you so much I had a great time as well thank you so much Smarinda I loved this chat with Wenyi and I'm so happy it's finally reaching everyone there were so many moments that stuck with me since our chat from her courage to not just go down a route because she started it how she approached the decision of whether she should go into academia or industry. I really liked her tips for how we can all do more to tackle climate change because so many of them focused on community, on our paying attention to what's happening nearby, and on how what makes us each unique doesn't have to move us apart, but it could bring us together. Our music is Float and Fly by Golgar Telly. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.